I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Algorithmic Rosebud Edition. It's Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. On today's show, Mank tells the story of Herman J. Mankiewicz and his authorship of the screenplay for Citizen Kane. It stars Gary Oldman in the title role. It was directed by David Fincher. We'll be joined by Slate's own Matthew Desim to discuss. And then Spotify has held its annual mirror up to who we really are. Its so-called wrapped feature shows us what music we've listened to most over the previous year, Julia Turner will join us to discuss. And finally, with Laura Miller as our co-host this week, we decided we had to ask her, what are your best books, favorite books of the year? She's made her list, and we will discuss. Joining me today is Laura Miller, the book critic for Slate and general cultural maven and critic for Slate. Hey, Laura. Hi. And of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's uh, film critic. Hey, Dana. Hello, hello. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Well, the movie Mank is now out on Netflix. It tells the story of how Herman J. Mankiewicz came to write what many people regard as the greatest screenplay of all time for the movie Citizen Kane. Mank started his career as a New York journalist and member of the famously clever Algonquin Circle in New York City. When the movie opens, he's a Hollywood screenwriter, an alcoholic who has largely pissed away his immense talents writing bad movies and playing court jester to the powers that be. He's now being tasked by a wonderkind named Orson Welles to write a movie about a press demagogue based on the unscrupulous, fervently right-wing William Randolph Hearst, who was, I think it's fair to say, the Rupert Murdoch of his time. Here's the twist, though. Mankiewicz once knew Hearst and knew him actually quite well. He was part of his rarefied inner social circle about a not quite a full decade before the opening of the movie in the 1930s, mostly because for Hearst, he played the part of the cherished fool, like the court jester, really. The movie switches back and forth between Mank now, a blousy, washed-up screenwriter, the contender getting his last shot by writing this movie for Wells, and to his earlier relationship with Hearst and the charmed Hearst circle, which included Marion Davies, an ex-showgirl actress and Hearst's mistress, with whom Mank struck up a quite beautiful friendship. The film stars Gary Oldman as Mankiewicz and uh, Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies. Let's listen to a clip. So just to set the scene up a little bit, the voices you'll hear will be Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz and Sam Trotton as the actor and producer John Hausman, who is coming to visit him in the remote cabin in the desert where he's been essentially exiled while he finishes the screenplay. You're asking a lot of a motion picture audience. All in all, it's a bit of a jumble. Did you say jumble or jungle? A hodgepodge of talky episodes, a collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old son. The story is so scattered, I'm afraid one will need a roadmap. You mean it's a mess? Would you consider simplifying? As Pascal once said, if only I'd had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. All I am saying is no one can write like that. But I can write like that, Houseman. I have. The narrative is one big circle like a cinnamon roll, not a straight line pointing to the nearest exit. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. But nobody expects Shakespeare. 
People aren't spending their hard-earned 25 cents to see Macbeth. Maestro the dark-faced boy did Macbeth. Voodoo, Macbeth. Don't be fooled. He's a showman, busker, reveling in sleight of hand. Save yourself the trouble. Be done in 60 days. He'll get this, and the audience will too. Stop worrying. Have a pickle. No, thank you. I'm not hungry. Haven't been since we got here. Cheerio. Right hard. Aim low. <laughs> All right, so for our discussion of Mank, we're joined by Matthew Desim, who is a browbeat uh, editor and contributor to Slate. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So Matt, I mean, one of the most striking things about the movie we can begin with is that that part of the making of Citizen Kane that does not involve Orson Welles turns out to be quite a remarkable story. You've dug into what of this movie is factual and not factual, including its huge subplot. You might even say it's a plot, which involves the destruction, Hearst's destruction of Upton Sinclair, who is running for the governorship of California as a, essentially a socialist. Um, talk a little bit about what's true and what's less than factual in the in this film. Yeah, sure. It's interesting, and it's something you can actually hear in that clip a little bit, is that the film has sort of been, it uses a lot of true facts, but there are events that didn't actually intersect with Herman J. Mankiewicz's life in that significant a way. Um, the writing of the screenplay is one thing, but the earlier flashbacks to Mankiewicz's career in Hollywood are structured around the 1934 California gubernatorial race, which is, yeah, as you say, this this Sinclair campaign, which is more or less accurately depicted on screen, but uh, Mankiewicz had nothing to do with. Um, it's The movie, of course, it's kind of structured after Citizen Kane, and Citizen Kane, you know, Kane is missing Rosebud. He has this unhealable wound. Um, Mankiewicz, the real Herman J. Mankiewicz, had a terrible relationship to his father, but there was no event in his life that would have obviously been the reason he turned against Hearst. So to give him a reason to write this caricature of Hearst and his, his mistress uh, in the film, they set up this situation where the real things Hearst did during that campaign are rearranged so that they break Herman Mankiewicz's heart, that they, they're rearranged in ways that justify the what Mankiewicz does during the writing of the script. Mm, okay, Dana, let's, let's pivot to you for a second. It is a movie, and what do you make of it as a film? <laughs> reminder that it's a movie. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm laughing at that in part also because the social media response to this movie, at least in, in my film Twitter world, has been so intense that I kind of need to be reminded that it is just a piece of entertainment that's that's on Netflix. Um, people are all up in arms about all kinds of things in this movie from historical inaccuracies to, you know, the contention that Mankiewicz wrote the script and was more responsible for it than Wells. And we can talk about the history of all those debates. Um, but when I reviewed this movie over a month ago, because it only opened on Netflix this week, but has been, I guess, in theaters for just about a month now, um, you know, I, I essentially sort of treated it as like uh, bait for film nerds that it's, you know, it's it's fun entertainment if you know a little bit of Hollywood history, if you know Citizen Kane pretty well. It's almost fanfic, right? It kind of fills in some imaginary holes around this uh, this moment in film history that we all know from only one angle, which is seeing the finished Citizen Kane. Um, but in fact, because social media will do this to, to every single product, it has not been a source of fun for film nerds, but instead has been a, an occasion for them all to fight with each other about things <laughs> extraneous to the movie. So but, but I, Dana, I that's wanted... how they have fun. <laughs> it's true. That's their version <laughs> of fun. I mean, I guess a part of me wants to stand up for 
this movie without saying that it's one of the greatest movies of the year. I found it somewhat disappointing in that I was really excited for it. And, you know, the idea of David Fincher, you know, a director who in the past I've not not always but often, you know, really loved and and found really exciting um, taking on this material and doing it, you know, in the way that he did. We haven't talked about the look or sound of the movie, but, you know, it's a it's a real throwback. It's it's shot in black and white. It's meant to look as if it were shot by Greg Toland, the cinematographer for Citizen Kane. So it's got all those familiar deep shadows and dusty moats floating in the sunlight and looks incredible, sounds incredible from a technical angle, is beautiful. Um, all kinds of great performances, most notably for me, Amanda Seyfried's as, as Marion Davis. Um, somebody that we think of, Amanda Seyfried, I think, as always playing ingenues or maybe at the most she'll play a sort of, you know, uh, a wicked mean girl in, in Mean Girls. But doesn't really get to play adult women with conflicting motives. And that's exactly how she plays Marion Davis. And it's it's a great performance, I think, Brooklyn accent at all. Um, so yeah, I, I am pro Mank, but at the same time, I think that it has a limited niche audience. And I have heard stories of film nerds sitting down with their non-film nerd partners to watch it. And the non-film nerd drops out <laughs> about an hour in <laughs> because it is a two hour and 12 minute long movie that's extremely diffuse in its storytelling. And I wonder what you, you all thought of that. Uh, the, the fact that this movie takes a long time spiraling like a cinnamon roll, as he says in that clip, mm-hmm. around what its actual story is. Sometimes it's this Upton Sinclair campaign. Sometimes it's the making of Citizen Kane. Sometimes it's the alcoholism of Herman Mankiewicz. It's just all over the place. And I guess close to the center of it is just this guy, this writer, trying to hit a kind of unrealistic deadline, which is a little stressful if you happen to be a writer yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's mm. actually the headline to my review is something yeah. about, you know, it's it's a movie about whether or not a drunk can meet his deadline, you know, which has <laughs> limited suspense if you are not someone who is always trying to meet your own. I did not know until after I saw the movie that Mankiewicz was not a supporter of... Um, the sort of leftist um, movements that swept through America in the 30s. But I guess maybe in some sense could sort of perceive it from the way the character was conceived. I mean, he's this guy who, you know, is uh, seems to have a basically kind heart, but who um, has this major gambling addiction and um, major alcoholism and his wife at some point everyone calls poor Sarah because of just the trials that he puts her through and um, he just didn't seem like a guy who would suddenly be swept up in the dream of socialism especially because he's so cynical so I feel like the character although Gary Oldham is a great actor and perhaps a little long in the tooth for this particular role but nevertheless he's he's really great I just feel like he didn't really have that much to work with because um, of this kind of dumb motivation that he mm-hmm. was set up with. But I mean, other than that, it was gorgeous. And I loved the the recreation of the, you know, the older acting style and and how it looked in many of the performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it agreed. And we should just, for those who haven't seen it, we should specify this is a movie about what appears to be an entirely fictionalized relationship between Mankiewicz and his left-wing politics and how Hearst and Louis B. Mara and Irving Thalberg stomp on his 1930s uh, aspirations for labor and the New Deal by destroying Upton Sinclair. So so on, 
a purely factual basis, like the movie com- totally travesties the actual Herman Mankiewicz. And then secondly, there's the authorship que- question of Citizen Kane, which is triply vexed because not only is it a factual question of who actually did what in the writing of the movie between Orson Welles and Mankiewicz, both of whom claimed they did it substantially without the other. They very jealously wanted that writer credit to themselves, even though officially they share credit on the movie. So there's, to begin with, just who wrote what, what drafts do we have that are still extant, how can we examine them and determine, you know, who did what. It turns out if you do all of the forensic analysis of the existing scripts as we have them, it seems pretty clear that Mankiewicz wrote a huge, somewhat traditionally structured, you know, pretty inclusive, fictionalized biography of Hearst in the, you know, in the in the per, per person of Charles Foster, fictional personage of Charles Foster Kane. And then Wells both rewrote that and then massively rewrote on the fly as he made the movie. And therefore, substantially, Wells has a claim to what makes Citizen Kane distinctive as a screenwriter has substantial claim to what makes Citizen Kane a, a work of distinctive cinematic genius. On top of that, there's the extra vexing question abstractly who authors a movie as between the director or the screenwriter, or the performers, the designers, or whatever. And a lot of the origin of this particular movie comes out of a long book-length essay written by Pauline Kael, initially published in The New Yorker, in which she made the argument that, that Mankiewicz effectively wrote the movie as the screenwriter and was screwed out of Wells due to his you know, creative will to power and his domineering personality. Mankiewicz was basically screwed out of credit for it. But Pauline Kael herself was prosecuting her own weird hobby horse about the auteur theory, which she felt placed way too much emphasis on the director as the writer of a movie because she had a deep affection as a creature of journalism herself, not only for screenwriters, but for this cohort that Mankiewicz was a prime example of, of New York journalists who, when talking pictures suddenly, virtually overnight came into existence, were hired at huge premia to come to Hollywood and write audible dialogue for the movies. They needed people who could write on a, that could crash huge amounts of copy on a deadline. And so they turned to these very clever Algonquin related uh, uh, New York journalists. And so Kale wrote this beautiful, in its way, beautiful, but also beautifully dishonest essay about what that, you know, cross-continental migration had meant to this cohort of writers and what it had meant for the movies, and that they're kind of getting stomped on by movie historians because of this perverse, in her mind, preoccupation with the with the director. So Matt, to have focused really an entire picture on two factual claims and then get them both wrong strikes me as a little weird. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where the story of Upton Sinclair and the epic campaign and the way that California's capital mobilized to crush him is, is it's a great story, but it's not Herman Mankiewicz's story, you know? So it's one of those yeah. things where it's like, uh, it's fascinating stuff, but it's making an argument that doesn't really add up to anything. Now, I mean, the argument is, does a movie have to have any relation to the real world and I, I would say probably not, but in this case a lot of people this is the one thing they're gonna learn about the writing of Citizen Kane and the nineteen thirty four campaign and um well actually I suppose it teaches you most of what you need to know about the nineteen thirty four campaign. So on those grounds <laughs> I approve. There's an interesting um other fold to this which comes out in an interview that Mark Harris did for Vulture with David Fincher, the director, in that 
the original version of the screenplay for this was written by his father who um and then rewritten multiple times and they he you know it, it, i think at one point he says there are people who are who have roles in this film who were not born when the original version of this script was was written his father was a a magazine journalist like a, basically a writer and fincher is a director who mostly doesn't write his movies and so he you know he eventually adapted his father's screenplay into this film, but there's a great moment where he says, you know, the idea that your film would be kind of done or mostly done in the screenplay is just so, he could understand why his father felt that way because when you're a writer, you have complete control over the end product, except of course for your editor or, you know, when stuff is cut for length. But, um, but you know, in making a film, there's just so much that you can't anticipate, so much, uh, you know, that's unexpected and 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 last minute and improvised, even in something, even in a work as controlled as Citizen Kane, that um, that it just doesn't even make any sense to talk about it in in that in that way. And um, and obviously, there were going to be things that Wells did in directing this film that Mank could never have anticipated because they would only come up in the actual making. Right. Yes, Laura, when you go into the to the movie knowing that Jack Fincher, who died in 2003, I believe, so 17 years before the movie came out, um, the, the screenwriter died, I think it becomes all the more moving and meaningful that David Fincher credits the screenplay entirely to him. I mean, it's obvious from that Mark Harris interview and other places that a lot of work has been done by other hands on the screenplay since then to update it and to, to take out some of his father's hobby horses. I think that his father's screenplay was more anti-Orson Welles than the movie turned out to be. Uh, but he gets the entire credit, which which is not nothing in a movie that's all about who is going to be credited for a screenplay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the movie is Mank. It's on Netflix, directed by David Fincher, written by his father, credited to his father, Jack Fincher. Check it out. Apparently, uh, film Twitter is aflame uh, with controversy about this film. We'd love to hear from you what you thought of it and what you think of it in relation to the real events that it supposedly depicts. And Steve, if I could just jump in and say, if people want to go even deeper into the, the spiraling cinnamon bun of the Mank universe, uh, Matt Desim and I are going to be spoiling it this week in a, a spoiler special, which we're taping tomorrow. So you can look for that on Friday if you want to watch Mank first and then watch us take it apart. Glorious. Matt, thank you so much for coming back on the show. That was, that was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. Dana, uh, what do you got? Steve, our first item of business is just to remind our listeners that we are going to have a remote live show. It's coming up on Wednesday, December 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. 
And as we always do at the end of the year, it will be a listener call-in show. So that means we can take some questions live on YouTube and Facebook where the show will be streaming. But we also want to collect some questions ahead of time. So we have something to start off with. So please, if there's anything that you want to ask the three of us, and Julia thankfully will be on for this show because we wouldn't want to do an end of year call-in without Julia, you can call us at 973-826-0318. Once again, that number is 973-826-0318 to leave us a voicemail question, and we may play your question live during the show and answer it. Once again, this will all happen on the evening of Wednesday, December 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want some more information, you can go to slate.com slash live. One more piece of business this week is to tell everyone, since the holiday season is here, that the Slate Shop is having a special holiday sale. Right now, you can get 30% off all kinds of Slate merchandise at shop.slate.com. You can get a nice pair of Slate socks. I happen to own three pairs of Slate socks because they're very comfy and I'm proud of my magazine. And a cozy Slate logo sweatshirt. Um, There's other fun stuff to check out there at shop.slate.com. And your 30% discount will be automatically added at checkout. Finally, our last announcement is about today's Slate Plus segment. We have Laura Miller, Slate's book critic, this week as our co-host. So we're going to use Laura's presence as an excuse to talk about a debate that's happening right now in the literary world about whether kids and young people should be reading more contemporary literature as opposed to the classics. Yes, it's the canon again, something that we've often debated on the Slate Culture Gab Fest. But this in particular is a twist on the canon argument having to do with YA, with assignments to younger kids in school etc. And according to Laura, this debate has gotten quite heated on Twitter. She follows YA Twitter and all of its drama, and she is going to catch us up on that. If there's anything that you as a listener would like to hear us discuss in a future Slate Plus segment, please let us know at culturefest at slate.com. It's part of the show that we like to keep light and fun and sort of different from the rest of the show, you know, just a, a personal question or anything that you would like to hear us answer. So please give us some ideas. And if you are not a Slate Plus member, as always, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus, where you will get ad-free podcasts, exclusive plus only content, and many other benefits. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. And for those of you who already subscribe, thank you so much. All right. Well, one consequence of cycling our entire existence through digital platforms is that the major tech companies form what has to be a more or less complete psychographic profile of who we are. We accommodate ourselves to this semi-voluntary Orwellian nightmare by reassuring ourselves, eh, this information only has value to third parties when it's all aggregated. Therefore, we may be being seen, being cataloged by the algorithm, but we're also being made anonymous by having it all aggregated into the mass. Well, curiously, Spotify has reversed the flow a little bit here. It has shown us who we are as the sum of our listening habits for the previous year. Uh, this feature called Wrapped, which I knew nothing about, but apparently has now become an annual ritual, shows us what our top songs, genres, album podcasts uh, of listening have been for the previous year. Also, where we lie in the top percentage of a given artist listenership in terms of sheer usage. Anyway, let me turn to Julia Turner. I, Julia, it's just the perfect segment to have you uh, join us uh, for. Thanks for coming back on. Hi, guys. I'm so glad to be back. And thank you so much for holding down the fort while I have to be away for a few weeks. Uh, Yeah, well, I think this is prompted because when I got my wrapped, which I will confess to having just just in in admitting in what total thrall I am to the tech companies, 
I was seeing people share their raps on social and I like probably went to Spotify 18 times to see where mine was and it wasn't coming up. And then I Googled Spotify wrapped not working and figured out that I needed to update the app. And anyway, I like went to some effort to get my surveillance state news about my own cultural taste, which you think I would know myself. But then what what Wrapped revealed to me is that I have no musical taste independent of this show because <laughs> my top five individual songs were all songs that we talked about or that I discovered anyway in the course of our summer strut listening. Um, my number one was one that I think I named, Roses by Iman Beck, um, the remix that was the TikTok sensation. But my album cuts were prompted by endorsements from you. So number one was the Andrew Rangel Bach Partitas that Dana recommended yes. a, little, a little while ago as thinking music. Fish pumping and for Bach over here. So my number one artist of the year, and I believe I am now, thanks to you, Dana, in the top 0.01 percentile of Andrew Rangel listeners. <laughs> so I'm like a super stan. And then number two was Taylor Swift's Folklore, album-wise. And number three was um, Red Garland's Red Alone, which is a piano album, jazz piano album that Steve recommended probably three, four years ago, but that's become a total staple of mine. So... Um, Anyway, I, I texted you guys a few choice screenshots, uh, and here we are. Let's continue with the first pass around the table, and then we can maybe draw the camera out and, and think about what this whole thing means. But Laura, what about you? Okay, well, my Spotify listening habits are, um, I, I can't tell if they're revealing or not. I mean, I basically listen to early music or um, ancient music, like classical music, in the daytime and jazz at night. So I am completely um, know nothing about pop music and never listen to it. And so uh, as a rule, um, I would have probably something like, um, like the Bach partitas on my heavy rotation. But this year, I really had trouble de-stressing from reading the news in the morning. I'd have to sit down and read a book, and it was really hard for me to concentrate, and I needed something that was extremely restful. And so I started to listen to this harpist named Helen Davies, and I just, what I do is I find like a song that I like or, or, or a track that I like, and I just create a radio station off of that, and then I listen to it, and when I hear something I like, I save it to a playlist. So as a result, this Helen Davies uh, arrangement of some old Irish song is was my number <laughs> number one track. Even though um, I could never have told you that because I was always just sort of putting it on and saying, "Look, you live in a beautiful bucolic setting. You need to calm down. You need to concentrate on this book. You need not to be freaking out." <laughs> you know, that was that was what Helen Davies was for me this year. And then the other was uh, Bill Evans' trio's Autumn Leaves because I created a, a radio station around that. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Dana, what about you? Well, when Julia sent us that that uh, screenshot of her her top songs or top albums, I guess that included our recommendations, I of course also immediately wanted to go on a on a dive to see what I listened to, and I I guess my listening habits are are boring in their own way because I really only listened to one pop album this year, and every one of my top five tracks is from that album, and uh, maybe we should listen to uh, my very number one track for a second. So yeah, ever since we talked about the Fiona Apple album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, back way back at the beginning of the pandemic, early spring, um, that's been essentially the only pop album that I've listened to, with maybe a little bit of the Taylor Swift album mixed in when, when that came out. Uh, other than that, I think that my habits maybe resemble Laura's to some extent. And to give you an idea, I mean, after those top five Fiona songs, which are a very accurate representation, not only of my listening habits this year, but of my pandemic big mood <laughs> the entire time, <laughs> that sense of kind of furious claustrophobia and, you know, the desire for freedom that that album is all about is just was so perfect for 2020. Um, but the next thing after that was, I think, a Lady Gaga song because I share my Spotify with my kid. Um, I love Lady Gaga too but you know all of this sort of um diva pop was her stuff and then immediately after that came the the laura miller-esque indian ragas which laura (laughs) is exactly what i use for that mood regulation you're talking about i feel like if i have non-western classical music on with no lyrics or lyrics in a language i don't know i can have that on while i read write you know otherwise try to gather my brain and it has that similar sort of sort of a effect on me like everything's okay keep yeah. going you know the the sitar is still droning in the background so yeah i mean essentially it was fiona 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 lady gaga and then nikhil Banerjee, who's my favorite sitar player and we got into the the indian droning portion of the year I share a Spotify account with my my entire family, which includes two teenage daughters. So let me give you my top five or six here, and it will give you a a taste of it. Number one is a King Princess song. Number two is a King Princess song. (laughs) Number five is a King Princess song. Number nine is a King Princess song. Number three is Claro. Number four is Phoebe Bridgers. And then squeaking in at number six is the Luxmiths, which is courtesy of of dad rock dad here so it's um and it's just what this informed me of is how incredibly tight the cycles of taste are in popular music when you're young because it wasn't a couple of weeks ago before i saw this list i was saying to the kids hey remember when we used to listen to king princess because (laughs) she's been so completely supplanted by phoebe bridgers who's this you know like towering figure of feminist heroism in my household now songwriting and otherwise and it just so completely obliterated king princess from our um, automobile djing that it seemed like something that had happened two or three years ago like you know more like when we were listening to adele you know which probably was more like eight or ten years ago but um what i realized from the songs that appear on my list that are courtesy of me is that i'm when i use spotify i'm a playlist uh, listener. So I put on a playlist that's often 
hours and hours and hours worth of music that I've kind of whatever added to over years and, and uh, put it on shuffle. And so there's just like one song or two songs or a few songs that maybe I, I just feel obliged, aside from that, that I feel obliged to play in here. And they appear on the list, even though I wasn't especially aware that they had a special place in my heart. But I do think that that song by the Luxmiths, which I hope we can play a little bit of, called the Cassingle Revival. People, do people remember Cassingles? You know, it was it was a cassette single, which even is just I remember Cassingles, Steve. Just the tiniest <laughs> little micro moment in the history of music, which is the point of the song, the poignant and sort of clever point of the whole song. But anyway, let's let's listen to it. I spent this for this morning from And let's listen to the song that was number one on our list, 1950, uh, by King Princess. Just an amazing song. So away from you, I will keep on waiting for your love. Julia, let me let me turn it back to you. This is this is obviously part of a business model uh, designed to produce as many network effects as possible. So by telling someone you're in the top 0.01% of Phoebe Bridgers and listeners, you're giving them something to brag about on social media, driving more people to Spotify to check their own Wrapped. Um, ironically, many people discover they are in a rather large suspiciously large cohort of top 1% listeners of Phoebe Bridgers or Taylor Swift. So who knows what's going on in the secret sauce there. But what do you make of this just as a as a tech business phenomenon? Well, I mean, obviously, our data is being repackaged to us so we can market their product. So we shouldn't feel great about it. But I have just always been a tracker. And I'm curious if you guys are trackers, but I like keep a list of all the books I read and have for 10 years. And I keep a list of all the movies I watch and I have for 10 years. And obviously, there's people like our frequent guest, Jamel, who do that on Letterboxd, which is a very cool community where film fans track their film watching and write reviews. Anyway, what I like about this is it satisfies my data obsession self. Um and and can reveal to you things you don't know about your cultural cons- consumption. Um, and, you know, not wild surprises. Like, it makes sense that my none of my number one tracks was from any of my top five. None of my top five tracks was from any of my top five albums, which makes sense because I, you know, listen to a pretty short list of my favorite songs on blast when I drive or when I'm needing peppy work music but when I need like writing or thinking work music I listen to Andrew Rangel and my family during the pandemic started doing these kind of sustained silent reading times now that my kids are getting into reading and there were a couple albums we would listen to there so the Red Garland sometimes Paul Simon was on my top five we listened to some of his albums um and uh Krungbin who I we talked about I think on Stratton whom I recommended so I'm curious whether you guys are 
are culture trackers, and this fits into any kind of culture tracking habit, or if part of what's interesting about it to you guys is that it's alien from your culture consumption. Yeah, I would say the latter, Julia. I'm the opposite of a tracker and am always sort of surprised to be reminded that there are all these surveillance instruments spying on me. Um, you know, things like your your steps being counted every time you walk around with your phone. I don't really check that. But then when I do, I'm sort of always surprised that somebody is, is calculating it. And this Spotify thing was interesting to me mainly because of what you sent around. I think otherwise I might not have noticed it. Then, of course, it became this complete wave on social media and to me, that stuff is like letterboxed, interesting to watch other people do. <laughs> you know, I was not one of those who were um, objecting to or mocking all the people who posted their Spotify raps. In fact, I always thought that they were interesting glimpses into that person's listening habits. And I guess to me, it seems like there are more dangerous things that the quantification of our data is doing than giving us a chance to share our favorite songs of the year. That seems relatively innocuous as um, as uses of personal data go. I'm not I don't really track either. I mean, I I I wish that I kept a list of all the books I'd read and especially of all the books that I started and didn't finish, which is hugely outnumbers all the books that I've read all the way through because I start a lot of books trying to figure out whether I think it's good enough to write about and then bail on it if I have a problem with it. Um but I often find that like not only do I forget whether I've read a particular book or not, but I sometimes forget books that I've reviewed. I mean, it's been like 30 years that I've been doing this. So um, sometimes I'll like search for a, a title, you know, a previous title by the author, and then I'll come up and a review will come up that I wrote, you know, ages ago of the earlier book. And I'll be like, wow, I don't even remember doing that. <laughs> um, so I do wish that I, I tracked that. Uh, I And I do track my steps and my sleep pretty religiously with a Fitbit. So it's, it is kind of funny that I don't track the thing that I do most of my, my uh, significant work on. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I, it won't shock you to hear, I don't track myself really at all. But the other thing that this exercise brought home to me is I'm not a quantitative, like I, I'm not, I, I have the opposite reaction to music, which is that if I really, really cherish something or, or like, like love it, like it's in the inner, inner, inner pantheon and the inner chamber of my heart, I actually listen to it less. So there's mm -hmm. kind of a reverse indicator here. There are certain things that I don't want to turn into the Mona Lisa. You know, I don't want to turn them into Hey Jude. I don't want them to be destroyed by overfamiliarity. And they just keep that 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 tenderness and that I don't know, that freshness basically by not being listened to very often. I mean, there are there are records that like kind of blue by Miles Davis is like you can it's so close to being the Mona Lisa of jazz. It's the I believe is the highest selling jazz album of all time. It's it's just an exquisite document, right? There's something perfect about it. I probably listen to that once every eight, 10 years, you know? And so it's just, it's weird how a certain song or a certain thing seems to have its power augmented by endless repetition for a highly concentrated period in your life. And that you're dosing yourself in some unconscious but it must be strategic way by doing that. And so that is fascinating. That's revealing. Like, what is it about this weird Australian indie pop band that I've been listening to now for 25 years since I first heard them over the, uh, over the speaker system in Kim's video in the East Village, you know, in 1996 or something. And it's like, 
somehow like I need to keep going back and back and back to that. But so it's, 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 I, I find the exercise very revealing, even though I'm not much of a quantitative fe- fetishist. All right. Well, um, uh, this is a cl- classic segment to have uh, listeners respond to via email. Love to hear what your rap consisted of and what it said about you and how you formulated your musical tastes and whether you use data to figure out who you are. All the above. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Julia, thanks so much for coming on and guesting. Of course, a total delight to have you back. Doesn't even need to be said. But what does need to be said is that we're doing it again next week for our live call-in show. And I should say, our call-in shows are always one of our favorite shows of the year. I believe it was during a call-in show that I was reduced to tears talking about a Tiny Mouse Architect book. I feel like we've had some of our best, funniest, weirdest shows during the call-in, but we've never done a call-in live, so that'll be fun. But we're counting on you guys to ask us great questions, you know, things you're dying to hear us talk about, cultural conundrums you'd like us to tackle. So please, please, please call and leave an enticing voicemail at 973-826-0318. 973-826-0318. We cannot wait. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, well, it's that time of year again. It's the end of year. We often talk about end-of-year lists. We do it with a little bit of a wry meta approach, but we do have Laura Miller on the show this week, and it just seemed too juicy to pass up. Uh, Laura, I'm, I want to start someplace larger and more holistic, and then let's drill down, but what was different, um, or can you pinpoint anything different or unique or uh, or uh, ostensibly trend-like about the books that you ended up not only not only picking but reading from this year? What was 2020 like as a year in books? Well, it was a crazy mixed-up year because at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of books were postponed on the theory that the publication dates of a lot of books were postponed till the fall on the theory that... Um, it was too hard, especially for newer writers, to publish into an environment where people couldn't go out to bookstores, where they couldn't travel on tour and do the local media that often helps bump a book up to a higher level of visibility and, and sales. Um, but the weird thing about that was also that for the first few months in the spring and the early summer, book sales were way up. And that was partly educational books because people were teaching their kids at home, but also people couldn't go out. And so a lot of people decided they were going to read more. Um, so it was, a, it was a really good year for people who were established names, you know, whose books people were looking forward to, and maybe not such a great year for debuts. I don't know. It will, it, we, we have yet to see the sort of year-round sales roundups that will give us a sense of whether all debuts tanked and it was only established names, which is generally how it is when it comes to the bestseller list. For mm-hmm. me, I am I tend to, I have a taste for somewhat darkish things, books that some people consider to be too depressing or just maybe cynical. 
I actually like. But this year, I I really couldn't go there. And um, I was fascinated to see that practically every, especially of the practically all of the fiction that I picked, had an element of the upbeat by the time you got to the end, you know, it had, it, 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 it went into an upper register and um, was not sort of unresolved and mournful the way I sometimes like, like books to be. Let's move into some specifics. So what did that mean when uh, the rubber hit the road here? Well, really, probably my favorite novel this year was Deacon King Kong by James McBride, who is also the author of Good Lord Bird, which was made into a sensational miniseries this year, and I recommend everyone check out. But um, while Good Lord Bird, it it definitely has a dark side because one of the main characters is hung by the end of it, um, John Brown. Um, Deacon King Kong is really about this neighborhood in Red Hook where James McBride's parents founded a church. And I think the novel that I am most inclined to compare it to is Jane Austen's Emma, which may sound weird because it's set, I think, in the early 60s. Not too much historical stuff in there. And it's a sort of a a mix of races and genders and classes um, in this neighborhood, maybe not so much classes. There's not a lot of really well-off um, wasps in it, um, but it's basically a village novel, like Emma. You know, it's about how you live in a place with all of these characters, and sometimes they drive you crazy, and sometimes um, you love them even as they're driving you crazy. And there's just a sense of the human community in it that. Um, even though it involves someone being shot, um, is still just so warming. I, I, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a lovely book. It's not sentimental or sappy or full of like generic sort of Hallmark movie uplift, but it is filled with love of humanity, which is just, was just so precious this year. Laura, I have another title to ask you about because on a previous guest spot on this show, you recommended another book in this series to me, um, you, th- and that's Summer by Allie Smith, mm. which is the conclusion of a four-book series she's written. I gather one for each of the seasons, and I remember that shortly after Fall came out, you were on the show, and you said to me specifically, I think that you would like Fall by Allie Smith. I still haven't read it. I haven't read very much fiction at all in the past couple of years because I'm so busy reading nonfiction to finish my own nonfiction book, but I wanted you to talk about Summer and about Allie Smith's series in general and just make it make another pitch for it make me read it yes okay well so autumn is actually what the book is called and the idea the the novel that I recommended to you and that's the first book in the series and now she has completed the series over the course of about four years and her goal was to write novels that are set in the present so that you would be reading it almost at the same time that 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 the in, almost in the same historical context, let's say, that the action of the novel is set in. So Summer, for example, came out over the course of the summer, and it is about the pandemic. Um, Autumn was about the aftermath of Brexit, and some of the intervening novels are about um, uh, the refugees and migrants in England and relationships between the generations it's a, it's basically a series of novels about getting through the past four years and the incredible pressure it has 
put on all of us to be surrounded by so much inhumane behavior on the part of our fellow citizens and the sort of rage and and bitterness and, and hatred that has sort of risen up like this sea monster from the deeps and also has been made more visible by forces like social media and how you still put together a sense, a meaningful sense of community and hope from, from you know, in those circumstances. Laura, if it's okay, um, let's switch over to nonfiction for a second. All righty. So you included on your final list uh, the memoir uh, from uh, Barack Obama. Talk a little bit about Promised Land. Yeah. Um, this memoir is, I mean, it's very, it's very no no drama Obama. You know, it is a very calm and <laughs> measured um, account of his, a little of his early life and his various political, or his three political campaigns and then what the work of the the president is like and what's kind of great about it is that his goal is really just to tell you what it's like to be president (laughs) and he doesn't really grandstand uh it's very detailed about how all of the different negotiations are made and how the decisions are made it's feels very forthright and it's just fascinating it's like a it's a story of doing a job in a way that 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 I just don't associate with presidential memoirs they tend to be so much more self-important than this one and um, and then there's you know great stuff about like how he fought with Michelle about you know his political ambitions and how much she didn't like being involved in politics. But then, you know, okay, she went along with it because he could talk her into it because he could probably talk anybody into anything. And, um, and it just, it just is so easy to relate to so well written. Um, One of the things that really stuck with me is this moment that he takes just as he's about to win the 2008 election when his grandmother dies, or she she's very sick, and he goes to see her, and he has to take a break to go out and walk through this neighborhood, which is basically where he grew up in, roughly, because his 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 grandparents raised him through a big chunk of his childhood, and he's he describes just walking through this neighborhood and remembering specific things, coming home from school, playing with friends, this or that, you know, he has a few specific memories, and thinking that when his grandmother dies, there will be nobody left who remembers what that part of his life is like, but him. And it's just this really beautifully written moment, like something from a novel. And it's right in the middle of this historic presidential campaign. And it just makes the whole thing feel grounded in a way that it is just really unusual in political memoirs. Okay, well, we could talk about this forever, but we don't have forever. So is there one or two titles from uh, the fiction and the nonfiction list you want to shout out to before we have to go? Well, here are two books that did not make it on a lot of other top 10 lists that I really want to single out. And one is Piranesi by Susanna Clark, which is a sort of Borghese and slightly fantastical novel about a man who lives in an infinite house that the lower floors are flooded by 
the seas and the upper floors are filled with clouds and he lives there all by himself except for one other person and how he gradually comes to understand that his existence is not what he thinks it is. And that is a beautiful novel. It seems like it would be sort of weird and cold and experimental, but it is like so many of the books on my list sort of filled with humanity and um, and warmth and, and optimism. And the other is Fathoms, The World in the Whale by Rebecca Giggs, which is a fantastically written book about whales and the environment and human beings. It's, it's an amazing book just for some of the descriptions. What kind of nailed it for me was in the first chapter, a description of what's called whale fall, which is what happens when a whale dies in the open ocean and its body slowly sinks and all the different creatures that come and feed off of the body at the different levels and how its appearance changes as it goes down and the creatures that are eating it become stranger and stranger looking and it's (laughs) just um so such a ravishing description obviously it's about whales and whales are amazing but it's very wide-ranging, and there's a lot of kind of mind-blowing stuff about the the way that so much of what humans produce is actually in whales now, and how whales have affected the environment in the past, and the and the diminishment of whales has affected the environment. It's just it's just like one of those books that's just full of wonder that I can't recommend more highly. Okay, we should say that by the time our show posts, the list may not be up. If not, it'll be up within a couple days at Slate. And uh, Laura wants us to note as well that Dan Coyce's list of best books of the year will be up alongside it. So check it out. All right, moving on. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything news, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques, and that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. I'm LeVar Burton, and if you're ready to escape into another world for a little bit, check out my podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. I read my favorite stories aloud every week by everyone from Stephen King to N.K. Jemison to Toni Morrison. Plus, we add a little sound design and music to make it a truly immersive experience. Listen to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I am going to crowdsource my endorsement this week, and it's inspired by a conversation uh, that I had that we had on the show a few weeks ago that turned into a Twitter conversation, including Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, who hopped in. And it was this idea that because we do our summer strut playlist every year, that we should do a corresponding winter playlist that mm. has the kind of music that you take long winter walks to, especially this winter when the only entertainment we have is essentially taking long walks outside. And so uh, Carl and some other people on Twitter were putting in uh, suggestions for this winter walk playlist. I thought that maybe I'd start it with that Ludovico Einaudi piece that I endorsed on here a couple 
weeks ago um, that is all around the theme of walking. And so I want to solicit from listeners ideas for this this winter walk playlist. And I have a couple of uh, maybe a, not exactly rules, but maybe a couple guidelines to help you choose. I mean, I think that the best winter walking music is mainly lyric free, although if there was an, an amazing song to include, um, I would I would accept that as well. And I'm interested in things from different cultures, maybe not only Western music, because like I was saying earlier in our Spotify segment, I also love to explore classical music of different traditions. Um, And I want people to introduce me to some great wallowing music that you could just have on in your headphones as you crunch through the snow with your dog. I think I'll also put on for Julia uh, the Andrew Rangel arrangement of the Bach partitas that she has as her number one Spotify for the year. But that's sort of the idea, autumnal and wintry, solemn uh, or sad or thoughtful music to walk by. So if you have suggestions, send them to me. I will compile a Winter Walk Spotify playlist and share it on a future show. Oh, that is cool. Uh, Laura, what do you have? Well, interestingly enough, my um, endorsement, it's a a one big endorsement with a mini endorsement, are also uh, wintry. I was reading a new memoir called Wintering, um, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times by Catherine May, which is just an interesting book about um, any period where you have to sort of retreat from the world as we all are now, but it could also be, you know, following an illness or uh, a big failure, a job loss, a divorce, who knows, but it's about sort of hunkering down, which it's very beautifully written. But the thing that it sent me to that I is my main endorsement is a book that I read as a child that completely enchanted me, which is called The Moomin Troll Midwinter by Tova Janssen. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, you either know about the Moomins, which are um, ostensibly trolls, but they look like very small white hippos, and they all live in Moomin Valley. Or you don't, and in which case I probably sound like an insane person. But Moomin Land, midwinter, is the story of how Moomin Troll, who's sort of the main youthful Moomin in the whole series, wakes up in the winter when all of the other Moomins and most of the other creatures in Moomin Valley are hibernating. And he goes out into the world and his home is completely transformed. He's never seen snow before. There are some creatures that are only there in the winter time. And it is so beautifully written, even in, in translation. And so, um, oh, it just casts an amazing spell that it is completely worth rereading as an adult. And that's what I'm reading right now. Mm, Toa Jensen is so such a brilliant children's book author and illustrator. It's it's just odd to me that she's not a little bit more classic in the in the U.S. than she is. Can you spell that last name? It's T O V E J A N S S O N. Tova Jensen. Okay, cool. I am uh, psyched to check that out. I have to say, Laura, I I have for my endorsement this week something more like a question that I have to ask you. Oh, okay. I am about 50% of the way through The Elementary Particles by Michelle Welbeck. Do I love it or hate it? <laughs> you know, I need I've, you, to, I've I need you to tell me. I have not read Welbeck because he just seems like such a repellent human being <sighs> that I didn't think I could endure it. And uh, I definitely have many friends who think very highly of him, but the things that they think highly of him are all things that make me go, hmm. So, the, so 
I can't help you here. You're on your own, Steve. I'm the, then the mystery persists, Laura, because I'm, as I say, I'm halfway through. I alternate between wanting to hurl the book out of a window and completely disgust or like into the open flames, right? And just greedily flipping the pages in order to continue reading and figure out where this is going. I mean, and I, I throw it open to the to the listeners too. I mean, he, he, first of all, clearly he is a kind of genius, right? But that doesn't really tell you much of anything. There's, It's an exploration of two massively, massively fucked up, I mean, really deeply broken and damaged men, half-brothers, as well as being something like a considered exploration of how humanity has debased itself by giving its libido over to the market, to the marketplace. Like there's a deep, you know, bitterness about how humanity has abridged itself vis-a-vis its own sexuality in relation to a commercialized mass culture. And it's misogynistic, but also about misogyny. I mean, it's it's clearly not... The, the the easy characterization of it as itself simply exploitative and misogynistic, I think, would be way, way, way too simplistic. Whether or not it's itself finally intrinsically repulsive it, itself, I mean, you're certainly meant to worry that that's the case, right? You're certainly meant to be provoked into suspecting that's possible. And anyway, I, I just am fascinated by the book. I've owned it for 20 years, probably, and finally it was just time just to read it in an afternoon and it, it just it, it's taken longer than that but anyway i can't endorse it but i have to i had to ask so it's just basically a question not an endorsement i mean i too own a copy that's around here somewhere um but i've just never attempted it because i always thought oh this is just going to drive me crazy I, I mean the people who i knew who really liked him who talked about uh his novels drove me crazy when they were talking about them. But I did actually like, he wrote a book about H.P. Lovecraft that I did read and quite liked. So um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure what to make of that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Laura, as always, thanks so much for coming on. Total pleasure. It was a delight. Thank you. Dana, thank you, as always. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love it when you do. And um, we have a Twitter feed. It's at slatecultfest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Laura Miller and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.